0: So, welcome to The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, Research Manager at the Oxford Research Group. And in this episode, we'll be joined by Emily Knowles, Associate Fellow at ORG, and Dr. Jahara Matazik, or Frankie, a US Air Force officer. Enjoy the show. Okay, hello both. Thank you very much for coming after almost a year of begging you both to come. I think it'd be good to start first and foremost just by introducing yourselves and your own work on the topic. So whoever wants to start, feel free. Hi,
1: so I'm Emily Knowles. And for a couple of years, I used to head up the remote warfare program, um, where I was doing field research into issues of security force assistance, um, including stints in Iraq, Afghanistan, Mali and Kenya. Um, And yeah, also, I've been writing with with Frankie on on this topic, and, and particularly, you know, how we take security force assistance from a Western perspective and learn lessons from the past, uh, for the past couple of years now.
2: So I am uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jahara Frankie Matasek. I am a officer and a pilot uh, in the United States Air Force. I'm also an assistant professor at the United States Air Force Academy over there in Colorado. And what better use of my PhD, which I got at Northwestern studying actually security force assistance and training foreign militaries is I'm actually deployed here Afghanistan, so you guys are a lucky audience if you get to hear me talking straight from the source here in Afghanistan, and um, put my PhD to use flying an airplane out here. Actually, so uh, talk about talent management. Anyways, um, (laughs) as is the usual bureaucrat, uh, the the bureaucrat disclaimer is the views represented by Lieutenant Colonel Mattis. I do not represent the views of the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Government, or any element of that as such. Uh, So, other than that. Everything you hear today is just me being myself and don't attribute it to the United States military.
0: Okay, well, let's start with the very catchy title of your recent War on the Rocks piece. Why does it not matter if we do not know if human rights training is working? (laughs) So there's a bit of a story to this one, because
1: I must say that it didn't come particularly naturally, especially as a lover of metrics and a firm believer in evidence-based programming. But what basically happened there was that the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, released a report in, I think it was August 2019, to say that contrary to a 2017 law, the U.S. Department of Defense and State had not evaluated the success of their human rights training programs. And obviously on on reading that news, my first thought wasn't, this is great. It was very much, oh no, and isn't this another example of how Foreign militaries aren't really paying much attention to the human rights uh, components of their, of their training and it's a problem that we've been tracking for many years, looking at how um, Western partners often find that the, the troops at their training continue to, to commit human rights abuses or abuse local populations where they're serving. Um, But actually, then we started, so Frankie and I had a conversation where we we started thinking about, well, actually, given that the GAO mandated now the DOD and DOS to actually come up with some metrics and to have a firm timeline on evaluating their programs, we started to look at this and think, you know, well, actually, if they were to do that at this particular moment, what would they evaluate and what would those evaluations say? And we came around to the idea of the fact that actually... You know, one of the things that we'd been discussing in our research was the fact that these programs are often designed um, and the goals that they have are too narrowly focused, especially on increasing the lethality of the troops that they're training. So actually, at this stage, if they were to assess them purely on those terms, we we decided that even uh, training missions that we thought like on a grand strategic level weren't successes might actually pass an evaluation. Like if you were to evaluate them purely on lethality and whether they'd improve the lethality of those troops, um, maybe they would come out with a great assessment. And actually, for those of us who are arguing for a strategic rethink or reorientation of security force assistance in fragile states, it's actually quite good that militaries aren't able to you know, pull off a massive like stack of years of metrics demonstrating that these programs are wildly successful um, because they haven't been evaluating the success of them. So. You know from that perspective it's kind of it's a blessing in disguise so let's leave it there it's not like i'm, I'm wildly enthusiastic that no one seems to be paying attention but at the same time like it, it's pretty good from this point of view um that we're not dealing with programs that have been kind of declared a a, a measured success yeah
0: i mean it's certainly a relief to have that <laughs> And I I also think that comes through in the piece which I recommend everyone should read and we'll also put a link to it in the show notes of this podcast. You know how there are many policy documents promising that these training operations can make capable, sustainable, committed, confident and accountable forces but then success is like you say measured in these short-term aims like lethality arms maneuvers also more recently just whether they avoid the course <laughs> and why why do you think this is why is there that disconnect between what we see we're going to achieve and the metrics that we use to achieve it yeah i think there are three
1: kind of core things to that and the first one is is sort of linked to the fact that these programs are largely military-led uh, operations. Another is linked to the short rotations then of military personnel throughout the training teams and the training effort. And the third one is really that, you know, what you're mandated to measure, you measure, and what you're not mandated to measure, you don't necessarily measure. So perhaps if, if I pick up on that last one first, because we've just been talking about the GAO and the fact that the human rights components haven't been evaluated. Because um, if, if I was to pick an example of of this kind of narrow focus in terms of what you measure Is what you're mandated to measure. If I take you back to to Afghanistan, and this is like 2008 Afghanistan, so this is before the US military really decided that its its role with the Afghan National Army extended past improving their fighting capabilities. So in 2008, you had the National Defense Authorization Act that specifically required the the Department of Defense to report on um, the effectiveness of their training with the Afghan National Army. But what the actual text said was that it wanted them specifically to monitor the number of Afghan units able to conduct operations independently. So actually between 2010-2013, this was what was done, but it was very narrowly focused on exactly that question. You had the commander's unit assessment tool that was set up specifically to say how many Afghan units are able to conduct operations independently. So they focused on on some quantitative measures like the total number of personnel authorized, assigned, present for duty, uh, equipment authorized on hand, operational, required and completed training, as well as some qualitative measures of units capabilities in terms of like leadership, logistics, communications, operations, personnel. But really based on like a traffic light system of like the top score you could get was that you were independent with advisors for an Afghan unit all the way down to that you were effective with partners or you were developing with partners but i guess like the point here is that it was a very narrowly focused assessment on that specific mandated question of like how many units are capable of operating independently so where there's a mandate to measure a particular thing you often get metrics associated with that but the overall like strategic effectiveness of a program is not generally you know what's laid out in in these acts to say we want you to you know, map out the, the long-term impact of these programs on, on human rights. So you don't get that measured in those assessments. So just to, to, to wind back a bit, because I also mentioned the fact that these programs tend to be military led. And I think, you know, from a UK perspective, and, and Frankie will fill us in um, on the US side of things, but it's interesting to me to see that, you know, whether these programs are run out of like specialized infantry battalion, 77th brigade, um, the British peace support team, uh, in Africa, it, it's often a military-led process, even if the funding itself comes from a joint government pool. It tends to be military staff who are out there running the bulk of the training. Um, and there's a real divide there between like, military capacity building, security force assistance, and then portfolios that sit with other departments like DFID, who has a stability, security and justice portfolio, or a security sector governance and reform uh, portfolio as well. So you know, you end up with this kind of aspirations, capabilities gap where you get that, those broad intentions of, you know, what is the point of working with these militaries? It's to, it's to create effective, legitimate, accountable forces. But what's actually delivered is is only really translated down to that military tactical level. And it ends up, you know, especially short-term because those military teams then rotate in and out so frequently. So there's a real pressure to pick short-term achievable goals um, especially cause everyone, you know, everyone wants their tour to be a success. Your, your end of, you know, deployment report can be linked individually to your, to your promotion cycle. Um, but also in aggregate to overall statements of mission success. So if you think back to those Afghan, um, assessments, they were really linked through, um, the special inspector general, uh, to, you know, is our presence in Afghanistan working? So you don't want to pick stuff that you're going to consistently fail at. Um, yeah. which, which often <laughs> means, you know, picking those like really short term tactical things to measure both because they can be measured and because they're likely to come out green at the end of your assessment.
2: Well, let me add, uh, a, a, a top onto that. Um, what Emily's getting at is there are problems within the problem of just doing military assistance, especially in the West, because, uh, the Brits, just like the American military, uh, as much as we say we value, you know, going out and training Iraq, uh, the Iraqi military, the Afghan military, the Somalian military, uh, unfortunately, promotion systems in the U.S. and I know it's the same way in in the British military system, uh, they don't value people that spend time doing this type of, you know, train, advise, assist type mission, and so you're caught in a really precarious situation of not only like the measurable stuff of folks that end up in these jobs that more often than not were non-volunteered or non-volved, as we call it, uh, end up in these jobs of they're, they're in that, that weird gray space of this job isn't really good for my career, but I should probably try to make the most of it. What can I do to at least produce numbers on paper? Right? Because, again, uh, the the promotion systems in in the U.S. and also the British system is you have to, you know, how much impact did you have? How many people did you train? Uh, How much of a budget did you manage and oversee? Things like that. Whereas we should really be looking at the qualitative aspects. And not only that, but just also like, are we sending the right people to do these missions? Uh, Like, for example, when I was uh, at AFRICOM, A couple years ago doing some interviews uh and this is just a function of of talent management and and bureaucracies uh but the guy who is running the chad desk you know basically in charge of making sure all the stuff's going to chad and all the trainers like that the guy the guy was actually a polish expert so the guy spoke polish uh is you know his parents and grandparents are polish he's an american he's an american uh officer but that's just what the talent management decided to do with them. They put him on a desk in charge of Chad that he knew nothing about and had never visited. And just sort of, it was, it was just sort of like a, you know, a faraway place where, you know, he just sent things off to go and got his reports back and that was it. Uh, and I think that kind of speaks to sort of the, uh, the fact that we try to treat, and I think that's actually the bigger point of all this is that we try to treat uh, security force assistance missions in a very bureaucratic fashion like Emily says, with, with the counting and measuring. And yet this is a very personal, very personalized um, endeavor. Uh, and to just sort of like just do the plug and play while it works with other NATO the countries, like advisors going into a weak or failed state, be it, you know, Niger, Mali, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the train advise assist thing, if you are overly... Uh, focus on the tactical uh, aspect of it. You're you're really missing like the bigger picture. You know, it's it's that old that old expression of like, don't be f- focusing on the trees. You be, you should actually be focusing on the forest. Uh, I, I see a lot of these uh, analogous issues in security force assistance, whether it's done by the Americans, the Brits, the Canadians, etc. Uh, and so I I hope that kind of like provides a little more uh, a breadth on that and and sort of the Inadequacies. I think that we already start from a bad position and then try to do it in a way that is just really not compatible for a lot of these countries.
0: I think that's that's a really great point and a really useful one. And I'm particularly interested in the the Polish expert in Chad example. And I think maybe maybe it talks to two kind of complementary but slightly different issues. The first is this: are we are we measuring success effectively? which can be quite a tactical measurement, but can also be long-term. But then there's also this, this second issue of whether we are actually aiming for the success that we set out in these policy documents. If we do quite a tactical training, do we expect to achieve these broader political changes? Maybe just to the first of those, do you, how do we measure training in this broader way Why, why should we do it? And how, what would this look like?
2: I mean, I I may defer to Emily on this one, but uh, I like to, I don't know. I I think of almost like the, the quantum entanglement problem of like the quirks and quarks. If you guys have heard this story of like, when you try to measure something just by virtue of trying to measure it, you actually altered the state of the particle. Have you guys heard about this at all?
0: No, no, do go on. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, no, I just think that when you, uh, when you try to measure it, I think it, 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 it brings about sort of change and bias and perception issues. And so that when you do really try to m- measure it in sort of like an overly bureaucratic fashion, you're again, it's that it's the black box problem, right? Like your input, what actually happens with the training, but you don't care you just all you want to see is the output. Uh, I think uh, when you you get a little too focused on the measurement element, you're missing the long term uh, perspective, and I and I think it goes back to I don't know if you guys uh, are you guys aware of the of the AFPAC Hands program? At
1: oh all?
2: yeah, uh, it's yeah. this uh, American program uh, that was set up just over uh, was like I think 2009 by. General McChrystal, basically the way to say, hey, we really want to institutionalize this idea of like working with the Afghans and the Pakistanis, hence AFPAC hands. I make it a long term career track in the U.S. military. And while it sounded really great on paper, it really failed in execution because you would, you know, get a person trained up to speak a posh tune, learn all about Afghan and Pakistani culture And then they would do a year or two of it. And then they would just go back to being a tank driver or being a pilot. And then five years later, they'd be like, hey, go back over to Afghanistan or Pakistan for a year and and do your Afghans things again. And it's just like all those relationships that you developed in like that year or two basically go away. And most people generally aren't going to be emailing the Afghan or Pakistani person they were working with because they've moved on and are doing it. They're back to basically doing their conventional warfare duties. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think I think it also really speaks to the point that, you know, while you might have broader aspirations for what your program is going to achieve, if you pick kind of tactical things to measure that you have to report on at the end of your tour, they become they become the priorities. So because you know that those are the things that you're going to be assessed on, those are going to be the things that you hit first. And if that's, you know, getting people into training arenas, if that's, you know, providing tactical training on you know, shooting a rifle, condu- conducting a patrol, these are all going to be the, the kind of priorities. And a lot of people that, that Frankie and I spoke to throughout the course of this research, by the time we got to, you know, crunchier topics like human rights training, people would talk about that really as a, a kind of a tick-in-the-box exercise or a check-in-the-box exercise before you can move on to, like, you know, the real training, the real stuff that you're there to do, the the, the, the lethal weapons training. Um, the combat armors maneuver, I, yeah yeah exactly so so therefore like your your measurement of have they been trained like <laughs> your human rights measurement becomes have they attended human rights training yes or no, have they sat through the PowerPoint presentation yes or no, rather than looking at like those broader measures like we advocate for in our war on the rocks piece which which really speak to you know has there been change like in the way that these troops behave both towards each other and towards other parts of Um, the security sector because remember in a lot of these fragile environments just because you're the official military doesn't mean that you have you know you're the only person providing security in these areas we're talking about places that are very fragmented and you have multiple security providers either at the local level or armed groups or community defense forces who are providing security in some measure so actually we think that in these in these environments actually what is going to make the difference over the long term is is making sure that security force assistance programs really start to hit the reasons why there's insecurity in the first place and that requires you to kind of look much broader at you know how your training affects civil military relations how your training affects cohesion within your force Um, so you know some of the things that we throw out in the article are things about you know did, did members from all the countries' ethnic groups attend the course? What was the level of participation from marginalised populations and genders? Did, did, did what you saw on the ground, like were people reacting to each other on the basis of their military hierarchy? Or did certain individuals or groups or, or clans or ethnicities dominate the course? Because all of these things are going to tell you, you know, really important things about the impact of that training. And I think really interestingly, actually, is is from a lot of the interviews that we did, this was stuff that um, military training providers could comment on if you asked them the question. They were observing this stuff. It's just no one was asking them to report on it. So this knowledge was kind of being lost.
2: And I think this is good for people that are interested in wanting to research this, um, is that most security force assistance type missions, for the most part, are unclassified. Uh, and you may be thinking like, okay, how is it unclassified? Well, uh, as one, uh, advisor told me a few weeks ago when I was asking him about the work with the Afghans out here in Afghanistan, he's like, yeah, I can talk about that. And I'm like, he's like, like, I'm like, isn't that classified? And he's like, no, cause the, they don't have a security clearance. So yeah, I can talk about it. Cause you know, cause that's, that, that's uh, that interesting element of this is I think in terms of getting access and talk, talking to people and asking questions, um, and so, for example, uh, when people were actually the, proactively the reaching out to Emily and I after the article we wrote in the Roussey Journal, that sort of was the kick for us to actually write this article for War on the Rocks, was, you know, we had a, a military officer to reach out to us and they see, you know, talk about his own frustration of going through the motions of providing human rights training to, you know, all these groups and, you know, all these militaries he was, he was training. Uh, We're obviously going to omit the country he was training in this case uh, because we don't want to, you know, make them feel bad for for being bad at human rights. But, you know, he made a comment about where he he was in their command post and they were doing an assault on a village. And one of the uh, host nation partner generals uh, was ordering his folks to fire artillery on the village. And this uh, Western military advisor uh, was like, hey, you can't do that. And so the, the general was, you know, sort of taken aback that, you know, this, this captain had told him to stop the He's, a, you know, he's a, a Western military officer, but telling him to stop. But, uh, the Western military officer also sort of basically started figuring out that, uh, after that, after that sort of confrontation over this general ordering the shelling of a village that obviously had a lot of civilians. Yeah. It had some insurgents but uh he basically figured out that the general just decided to not do any engagements when this advisor was around and i think that speaks to sort of the deeper systemic issues that emily and i have just seen for how long we've been doing this research for years now is that how do you how do you actually like Get away from this. I I used the term babysitting originally in the, in the in the article that that Emily and I originally wrote, and then Emily was like, "That sounds a little too paternalistic." I agreed. I, I relented, of course. <laughs> I uh, love how
0: you're including it now, though.
2: But <laughs> well, well, because I mean, <laughs> it's it, we're it's, having a good it's fucking a great time. Great example
1: right? of per- personal learning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> get it out there.
2: <laughs> yeah, but. You know, it's just one of those things of like, at what, at what point do we know this, this sort of a socialization process of making them professional? I mean, in most cases, unless you want them to be as professional as as the British military or the the American military or or the Canadian military, uh, the question is, can we actually walk away and not be there for a day? And do they keep on doing the right thing when no one's watching? Right. I think, um, in, uh, Peter Fever calls it uh, that it's 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 the problem of of are you observing and monitoring and when can uh, they get away? And the term they use is shirking. Right. Uh, and so I think that's going to be a, a perennial problem that I think uh, for Emily and I and, and your listeners, hopefully thinking about how do you research this and how do you actually make that transition to institutionalize good professional norms of behavior of like yeah, don't shell the village just because there's a couple of insurgents there, right? Um, it's easy to teach that in a PowerPoint right because we do it all the time and yet you still have <laughs> armies we train <laughs> shelling villages and uh, you know um, t- you know torturing the prisoners or you know uh, killing the insurgents they kill or you know, yeah, uh, killing the insurgents that they capture, and then, like, desecrating their bodies and, and leaving them outside the base, like, to send a message, you know, to the insurgents, while it m- maybe makes them feel good, you know, we know enough uh, just from, like, the literature that that actually does not help. That actually makes things worse. When you start desecrating bodies and trying to do that sort of, you know, signaling, it doesn't actually work. It just makes people more angry at you it really damages your credibility, your authority, your legitimacy, and you sort of strengthen the resolve of your adversaries.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I would just add on to there is, is was kind of the the basis for the, the RUSI article that, that we both wrote together was that realization that military training, like the content stuff, will only fix problems that are caused by a lack of skills or knowledge. They're not going to fix things that are caused by... They're not going to change attitudes, whether that's attitudes towards civilians or women or people of other religions or clans or whatever that may be. If you're looking for like actually changing behavior in the long term, as Frankie said, like that was one of the questions that we put forward in the War on the Rocks article is, you know, this stuff is really hard. Training international militaries in fragile states fails for a wide number of, of very practical reasons because it is very difficult to do but perhaps like the bigger question here is you know how how do we train militaries that will adhere to human rights even when they're not being monitored or supervised by international forces as frankie says
0: and and i wonder how much the measuring the success of whether or not that is happening can happen at the military level you mentioned some really good questions that i think we need the answers to but sh- at what level should we be asking those questions
2: i mean with answering those questions, I mean, that's, those are strategic level questions and policies that need to be administered and expecting a captain or an NCO uh, to figure that out uh, is highly unlikely. Like they can impart their vision at the, at, at the unit level. But when it comes to like the leadership of that uh, partner military that you're working with, that, that captain or NCO can
1: only do so much. Yeah, I would disagree controversially, which is always great on a podcast. Exactly, I'm just going to throw my hat down here. Um, No, because I think think it's a really important question about who leads this conversation. I think absolutely this is the sort of thing that needs to be led from the top to say, hey, you know what, we genuinely care about the long-term impact of our human rights training on the conduct of hostilities by our partner forces. And we've designed a set of metrics that we want you to to gather evidence against that we're going to use to track this over the long term, right? Um, but fundamentally, you know, a lot of the the troops on the ground that we that we interviewed um, were, you know, they it wasn't like we were only talking to strategic level generals or people who were in command of the entire country operation. Actually, sitting down and talking to people that have been training these forces for six months, eight months. You could you could elicit plenty of opinions about the, the way that they conducted their operations or, you know, their resistance to having women in the force or the ethnic or um, factional imbalances within the forces that were being trained. It's just that, you know, without providing people with the templates to actually report that in a, in a consistent fashion. It becomes very difficult for people at those higher strategic levels to absorb that information and to to make a strategic plan on the basis of it and I mean I was really surprised at the number of people that we spoke to who you know they'd been asked a couple of things to report on uh, while they were while they were deployed, but they tended to be very broad questions. I remember sitting down with someone who was deployed. Um, as part of the EU training mission in Mali, who was basically there as a UK officer and said, you know, I've been asked to report on anything that would affect the UK's position in Mali to do with the G5 Sahel. And I mean, that's just, that's just huge. You you can't provide, you know, targeted information that's going to inform, you know, a, a particular strategy if you don't ask people really specific questions. And then again, when people were returning from deployment, they weren't the, the process of, of gathering lessons learned um is is, is far too sporadic and it, it is far too broad like either people don't get asked any questions or they get pulled into a mission exploitation symposium that covers everything from the provision of equipment to them in the field and what could be done to improve it all the way up to big strategic level questions of did they feel like they had an impact um on the, on the operation itself. And I think that, you know, if you provide people with a checklist of things to look for, whether they're providing training at a really tactical level, or whether they're operating in a strategic headquarters, there's something there at each level that you can use as a proxy to measure stuff like adherence to human rights, or attitudes towards the civilian population, or attitudes towards civilian control over the military, or stuff that we know that we're interested in. It's just that we're not gathering that from our training missions as they currently stand.
2: And I guess uh, if if I can throw in my element of disagreement to this, so to add more to the intrigue with, uh, with my disagreement with Emily is, uh, I guess I look at this in terms of the problem of getting people to cooperate and not defect. Because again, these places that Emily and I look at and people we talk to, it's this sort of fragmented a security, um, infrastructure in this country where, you know, we're in the, in the West, like we're just used to like a meritocracy of, of people basically go up the ranks because they get promoted, not because of their last name or who they know, but, or what family they're from. Although I guess the British military, you guys do that with, with, with Prince Harry, Prince William, but I digress. Um, <laughs> But for the most part, you know, it, it, it's a mer- it's a meritocracy. Whereas in a lot of these countries, the uh, the positions of being the commander of the army or of um, the air forces or of armor, or, you know, just depending on certain the, the way they organize it, it's given out to families, and it's uh, the military isn't so much a uh, a function of pursuing military effectiveness. It's more just it's it's a patronage system uh, for basically distributing rents. And so when you have uh, American and British and other military advisors come into that country to provide assistance and, you know, teach them how to march and and shoot straight and things like that, uh, for that, um, for at least from my perspective, things I've seen is those countries dole that out as patronage to people that they want to reward in the government, as opposed to choosing their worst weakest unit to improve them. They instead give it, give the training to a loyal unit or they're trying to get the loyalty of a certain unit. Does that make sense? Yeah. So so you end up with this really bizarre world of the military systems that it's supposed to be going to ends up getting used as a way of basically buying off people's loyalty. And then the few times that you do have people on the grant, you know, like for example, there was an American advisor I was talking to in Somalia it was actually a, a first lieutenant army officer. Uh, he was basically running like a logistics program to teach the Somali national army. He at least had been gotten wise of making sure, or he, he was actually checking to making sure which uh, clans, each of the people he was training was coming from. And when he saw that it was going in one direction towards a certain clan, he told his bosses that he's going to stop the training uh, if they don't balance the clans properly now. Of course, you would think the Somalis would be like, "Fine, fine, fine." We'll balance the clans properly. Uh, they just said, "All right, fine. We're going to stop sending people." And then there, therein lies the uh, other inherent problem: is at that point you go, "Are you just using us, or are we actually getting anywhere in this system?"
1: Mm. I would like. I I really like that argument, and I think that controversially, it supports the fact that you know people at a at a lower level can measure and monitor this stuff. Um, you know, the guy that was organizing the training recognized the fact that one clan was benefiting and tried to make that change at his level. And I think that, you know, rolling that out across training missions to say that, you know, these are the things that we want to measure because they're important indicators of exactly that, Frankie, you know, whether the training is actually likely to change attitudes and behaviours or whether it's being used as a reward mechanism or whether the right troops aren't getting trained that's something that needs to that needs to be picked up on on the lower level it's not something that strategic commanders are necessarily going to see the scale of the problem if they're not getting consistent reports from the ground and I mean, this is a problem that we've picked up before in, in other arenas as well. I remember in, in 2014, I was doing an assessment of corruption and its its impact on mission success in Afghanistan um, for Transparency International. And looking at that study, it was, it was amazing how many people we interviewed at a lower level within the military who were saying, you know, I thought it was bad that all of our contracts, when we were setting up a base, that all of our... Contracts for building materials for laundry, for food for protection were all coming from the same families um, but i didn 't report like i wasn 't ever asked about that that wasn 't something that was being reported up the the command chain because it wasn 't something that was being communicated as a strategic priority right at least not until much later during the mission so I think, I think you missed yeah. an opportunity if you if you say well you know this doesn't sit at the tactical level this is a strategic level issue sure but it's people at the tactical level who are going to be seeing a lot of these indicators that if you have them would be red flags to say hey we've got a problem here it looks like there's a systemic abuse of this training for example or that all of this human rights training is unlikely to provide an effect because of these these metrics that are being passed to us by our training teams
0: and i would also say that I mean, you're both right in a sense that unless those the tactical and the strategic speak to each other, then you're just going to have enclaves of excellence doing kind of good tactical things and you're going to have a strategic plan that doesn't reflect the realities on the ground. So there's that middle operational level that needs to make sure that both at a tactical level it's being fed up into a strategic plan, but also at a strategic level that we're making sure we're learning from those tactical mistakes and building them into something that can have strategic change and i think that kind of speaks to the second argument that the peace and war on the rocks makes that we think that security force assistance that you think security force assistance can actually have long term institutional impacts if the focus was shifted towards the strategic and political levels so what what does that look like do you
2: have any examples of it working in practice? Well, yeah, working in practice. I mean, uh, I, I would say uh, in a place like uh, Senegal, uh, decades of American and, and French uh, assistance to like the Senegalese military has, has really made them sort of an outlier uh, on the African continent, especially in West Africa, as the uh, the only countries that have not had a, a military coup attempt and what I would regard as a highly professional force. I've spent uh, a, a significant amount of time w- with the Senegalese military. Uh, but I think that's also, uh, that's that also has been a, a product of like just political willpower on, on their part to actually absorb military assistance from, from the Brits, the French, uh, the Americans. Um, one of the coolest things I ever encountered was uh, meeting a lot of senior uh, Senegalese officers who uh who would talk about like um how much they loved getting uh getting an opportunity to go to the US and and go to like to one of the war colleges and and get a master's degree and i i would actually say of 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 all the of all the foreign militaries i've trained that is that almost always seems to be like their like their favorite thing is is going off to france england the U.S. is usually, like, those are, like, their top three choices. Uh, usually if they're not, like, like a good, uh, as good of an officer, they end up having to go to, like, uh, Pakistan, like, their war college or, like, the Chinese war college or something like that. Uh, but, like, they really, really love getting to go to, like, these Western countries for a year or two and, and getting a master's degree at one of their respective war colleges. And I think maybe that's, maybe that is how you kind of institutionalize in a lot of these countries, uh, which is kind of uh, the opposite of, of a lot of research basically saying that, like, Oh, when you provide this, um, education and and military training, they're more likely to engage in a coup yet. I, yet at the, at a certain level, if you, if you really actually dial it down, like for example, Rwanda, if you go on like a security assistance monitor, uh, right now, you'll see over the last 20 years, we've trained up almost 30,000 Rwandan troops. Uh, and there hasn't been a single uh, coup attempt there. Uh, it's same thing in, in Senegal as well. Like, there are countries where they, you know, they value the opportunity to go to the U S Britain and France and other Western countries and get this education and they bring it back to the country and they improve their country and they engage in sort of state development projects. And when they leave military service, those skills and abilities they learn just via Western education and stuff like that, they bring it with them to, the private sector or if they continued to serve in, in a certain capacity uh in government and sort of kind of keeping the momentum going of sort of uh d- developing these relationships and institutions that sort of get them out of that uh, out of that unfortunate trap of civil war and stuff
1: No, i think that's an excellent point and actually i i know that that's something that's come across as well in interviews that i conducted with with you as well abby about that really important you know, what is the motivation of the force that you're training? Like, do they, w- what are their goals and their objectives? And I think one of the, the things that you can see is if you've got a genuinely, a, a committed partner like the, like the Senegalese who want to improve their military skills, but also improve the way that they think about the military and the relationship of the military in, in broader society, like you can, you can make a really big impact with training. And the problem is, is that, as, as we know from, from looking at how British training programs tend to be devised, you know, that local perspective in terms of, you know, what is it? What are their objectives? What are their priorities? Tends to be built in like, right at the end or towards the end of a, of a scoping exercise for, for British military assistance. Like we come up with a plan. And then at a certain moment, we tell the partner force what that plan is, and they might be able to submit some things that they would like added or amended in that plan, but it's not really a a locally owned, locally driven process. Um, And in a lot of these places, we know that we're providing human rights training to forces that have very little motivation to actually change the way that they interact with the civilian population. And yet it seems that we're surprised when sitting through IHL training doesn't have an impact on their conduct during operations and that gets like right to the heart of of that point doesn't it that that you know the, the training won't fix problems that aren't caused by a lack of skills or knowledge and people aren't going to learn things that they don't have an interest in learning you know that that um motivational factor is is really such an important indicator as to whether this is going to be like a long term strategic success or not and yet it's not brought in early enough in the process i would say
0: yeah and that's something that we also looked at in our own fusion report this idea that we just bring we bring it to partners too late in the game for them to have meaningful impact because there's the risk that if they say no to the training that the funding to the training is also removed so which one would you pick so i think i'm just finished by by asking in the war on the rocks piece you talk about this broader research on security force assistance can you expand a bit on what that means and how it links in with the problems of evaluating the success of current training programs
1: yeah sure i mean i think it it's uh it's basically a product of the fact that when we started to look at security force assistance programs and how they were put together and how they were measured one of the things that we identified uh was that really it's it's not so much a problem about how training is delivered like the quantity and the quality of training or the quantity and quality of local troops trained is important but more important is the fact that you need to have a really um, comprehensive vision for what it is that you're trying to achieve through this training and in states especially in fragile states where you've got you've got fragmentation of the security sector you've got perhaps sectarianism or corruption or violence has been normalized by a regime or within a state, those factors really shape how security forces behave towards civilians um, and inform their responses to conflict and insecurity. So if approached too technically, security force assistance in these environments can actually be destabilizing because it it can act as a sort of unintentional kingmaker where you're, you're capacity building a force, but the force itself doesn't represent the interests um, of the population as a whole and the problem is is you know we don't really have any metrics in place to decide where that's the case or to decide what to do with that information once we've got it so you get you know a lot of policy debate focuses on whether or not we should provide security force assistance at all to militaries who commit abuses um, or who are partisan but I mean through our research we think that there might you know there might be a secret third option that doesn't focus so much on whether or not there's irrefutable evidence that a unit is abusing civilians because that locks us into a kind of a standards and safeguards mentality where NGOs and other people are often trying to like overcome a barrier for what level of evidence switches a light from green to red so you know what level of abuses would be enough to alter whether security force assistance is provided um, by western partners to a local force Um, but instead uh, perhaps you know the answer is that we assume that security forces under certain conditions, um, especially in fragile and fragmented set- settings, are, they're highly likely to commit abuses or there's a conducive environment for human rights abuses occurring. So actually, you know, maybe we provide security force assistance, but on the condition that we design those programs to actually address those conditions. So that would be adopting a peace-building approach to security force assistance. You work with where you are rather than where you'd like to be. And you design those programs to improve relationships across and around the security sector in its broadest sense. So that means, you know, in in countries where there are a variety of armed groups or militia or security forces in different departments or representing different clan identities or representing different regional or religious identities, we would say that, you know, a peacebuilding approach to security force assistance means designing programs that actually integrate those fighters. Anyone who's providing security legitimately in an area should be considered as part of security force assistance and around the security sector as well so making sure that you know local um local nationals civil society organizations but also other government departments ministries of interior ministries of justice are involved in that security force assistance because what you're actually doing is treating it as kind of a mini peace building project to improve or to um, ameliorate fragmentation of that security sector, so that's where we get to, you know, looking at security force assistance design as a way of bringing groups that are in conflict into into more contact with one another. So making sure that you've got units who represent different clans in the room, tracking, you know, the the um, ethnic diversity of courses, um, tracking the quality of, of interactions between those groups. Whether operating together over a long period of time improves those relationships, whether they become um, less conflicted, whether, you know, having civilians in the room, how that has an impact on, uh, on the military side of things and whether those relationships improve. So it's really thinking about security force assistance as a tool to enable or reform relationships between different security actors within a fragile state and between civilians and the military. And we just think that this is, this is more appropriate to the local realities of security sector fragmentation than traditional security force assistance in fragile states, which aims to make partners more lethal, but often misses that broader point about, you know, how do you provide assistance in an environment where your partner itself doesn't represent the, the society or the interests of society as a whole. So that yeah, I think Emily... kind of brings everything in in terms of, you know, what is a peace building approach to security force assistance and why is it needed?
2: And I think uh, to Emily's point on this, uh, there's there's two sides of the coin. Uh, the, the, uh, what I think is important about what Emily was talking about and what, what I think we're, we're trying to get is engaging these informal security actors uh, in these, these places where people kind of know how to keep control of their areas and they know how to sort of um, basically provide informal security without the the police or the army there is actually engaging them and, and seeing if you can get them to buy into the peace-building approach with the actual national army, with the regional police. Now, here's the international a political problem, and this is the two sides of the coin, is that on one hand, uh, like the US or British government will say like, no, 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 we can't engage these informal security actors because they're, they don't represent the state, they're not formal actors, they're not elected leaders, right? So you have that on one hand. So, for example, a Somaliland is a great example of a state within a state that, more or less, the West can't engage or train or equip or do anything with the Somaliland army, even though Somaliland has basically been its own state for the last three decades, essentially, uh, and they have some modicum of freedom and democracy there and a fairly effective army in that country. But the you know the the red line is like, no, the West will not engage Somaliland because it, is, it, it never seized a Mogadishu. It is not a, a sovereign state. Yet here on the other side of the coin, you have the U.S. and the Brits and other countries that were, that were and have been supporting the Kurds and the Peshmerga, which the Turks consider to be terrorists. And yet we willingly engage with them, even though Kurdistan is not a country. And yet we do it and we just go blah, 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 national interest. So I think yeah. that's an important uh, thing to walk through is the fact that the Peshmerga are also informal security actors and yet the U.S. and the Brits and you know, pretty much all, all of NATO and most of the world has no problem engaging in a security force assistance with the Kurdish military.
1: Yeah, and perhaps, perhaps I'd just cap this off just by saying yeah. that, you know, what, what is the reason why we're providing security force assistance in a lot of these environments to begin with? And it's because we're trying to address Um, violent non-state actors who who pose a threat to our own national security right and and these groups really thrive in areas where um, governance is weak and so therefore when when we're looking for partners in these areas it means that really what we're doing is we're working with partners who haven't been able to sustain good governance in their countries which increases the chances that you're engaging with with partners who are predatory or corrupt Or sectarian, so you can't really use that traditional approach of just bolstering host nation legitimacy. And I I mean, I think when we tracked it back um, through some data from ACLED since 2007, we saw that you know 23% of violent incidents that they have on record have been perpetrated by state actors, not by not by militia, not by terrorist groups. So in those environments, you know, you, you need to look at the security sector more broadly. You can't just pour all of your effort into Um, into supporting a force because it's the the national army or because um, it's your chosen partner, but in isolation to understanding the rest of the security environment and including them in, in the program. Otherwise, you know, at best you get islands of excellence where you've trained a small elite unit, but it can't function in the border security sector or at worst you end up training a a partner who remains corrupt inefficient, and predatory and won't gain the support or the legitimacy in the eyes of the population. So I guess, you know, fragile states are a a particular concern here for security force assistance, but they're also the places where we find the most security force assistance going on. So it's really important to get that right.
0: I think that is an important line to end it on. So thank you so much to Emily and Frankie for joining us. I really enjoyed that discussion and I have so many more questions that I will be in trouble if I ask. <laughs>
2: <Thank> <laughs> I'm so going to write something again, Emily, right? Yes,
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm all here for another article.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. But we'll
1: get on it. And then hopefully with the next one, we can actually be face to face.
2: Yes, exactly. When the Corona madness is over.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: When you get back from Afghanistan.
2: (laughs) Yep. Yep. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Okay. So to stay up to date with anything that we mentioned, all the research that we mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes. And to stay up to date with any of the other research at the Remote Warfare Program or the Oxford Research Group, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at oj info and <laughs> underscore warfare. Do you two want to give a shout out to your own Twitter handles? Sure,
1: I'm at Knowles underscore em.
2: And. I don't do Twitter yet, although I guess you guys <laughs> will have to convince me to get a Twitter account. If you Google my name, you will find me. I'm the only Johar of the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to joining you again soon. Bye.